Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 with me this morning. Galatians chapter 3. In most team sports, teams that want to do well need to excel both in offense and in defense. There, You could have a team that is very good in offense, but they're not good enough to win championships because they let in too many points. They are outscored by their opponents. Teams that only have a good defense and not a good offense will have trouble scoring themselves and so will often find themselves um, outside of the elite teams in the league. And the same thing is, a similar thing is true in the courtroom as well. If you want to be a good lawyer, then you need to be both offensive, you need to be able to attack the opposing uh, case, as well as defensive, you need to be able to protect your own argument and um, and uh, the claims that are are uh, that you have stated. Paul has been on the defensive for the most part in the first couple chapters of Galatians, and he has been seeking to defend himself from his Jewish opponents who have crept into these churches in the region of Galatia and convinced these believers that Paul is a fraud and that he must be discarded along with his gospel message that has nothing to do with the message of Abraham or the gospel of Abraham or their father uh, whom they love. Paul had taught them that the gospel comes by grace through faith and that it's not of works. But within a year, some Jewish opponents had come in and convinced these these Jewish believers and Gentile believers to believe that the gospel required more than faith. That they may have come to God in that way, but if they want to keep in good standing with God, they need to adopt all of these Jewish regulations, these Jewish rituals. And uh, if they wanted to be pleasing to God, that's what they had to do. And the reason that the Galatians were so mistaken according to these opponents was because Paul was preaching a gospel that was inconsistent with the gospel that came to Abraham. And that ultimately Paul wasn't a pillar apostle. He wasn't like Peter, James, and John. So you can kind of discard what he has to say because he's actually received his message another way and he's manipulated it, distorted it, before he gave it to you. And Paul's saying, no, I am a genuine apostle. I got my message directly from Christ. And so it's not inferior. It's actually the true gospel. And in fact, Peter, James, and John agree with my message. And so in response to these claims by his opponents, Paul defends his apostleship and his gospel in chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he shows from the Scripture the true nature of the Gospel. And that's where we've been the last couple of weeks, seeing the true nature of the Gospel, that it is not something that we have to do. It's not performance that is required in order for us to be accepted before God. But rather, it is faith. It is hearing by faith. Receiving the message, responding with faith. Not a performance. And the Galatians should have known from their own experience that their salvation did not come from their performance. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul lists these series of questions. I think there's six questions there. 
And he says, how did you initially come to saving faith? Was it through your works? Through the works of the law? Or was it by by hearing through faith? Or with hearing through faith? And of course, the answer is by hearing with faith. That's how we came to to Christ. And so, he moves on to the end of that passage of chapter 3, verse 5, and says, if that's the way you came to Christ, by hearing with faith, then that's the way you continue in your faith. If you want to continue to grow in your faith and be in a right standing before God, the same thing is true. You need to hear with faith. It's not your performance that that uh, makes you acceptable before God. And in fact, that is exactly how Abraham received the Spirit. That's what we looked at last week in verses 6-14. through 14. Notice, Chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, what what they would expect, these opponents would expect Paul to say here would be, yet Abraham worked in order to be accepted before God, in order to receive this righteousness. But Paul says, no. The Scriptures are clear. Genesis says, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to his account as righteousness. And so his point is this. The gospel that I've told to you, Galatians, is the same gospel that Abraham received. That he came to saving faith. He he came to a, a proper conversion through his belief. Not through any amount of works that he had to do. In fact, his circumcision, which is what they were suggesting the that the believers do there. They become circumcised in order to be accepted before God. Abraham's circumcision came after he had believed that he was called out of Ur of Chaldees and when he believed God to leave that place and go to a place that God would tell him, God credited Abraham's simple belief as righteousness. Now, obviously the Galatian believers have more understanding of the content of the Gospel. For for Abraham, he didn't know it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth that would actually come and die and, and be buried for three days and then raised from the dead. Abraham didn't know that. The Galatians did. But Abraham did know that there was a Redeemer who was coming and that ultimately his salvation does not come through his performance. And this is what Paul has been trying to explain to the... It remind really the the Galatians, that that Abraham had believed God's Word and God counted it as righteousness. And that's the same way the Galatians responded. And so, now the Galatians have to come up with the following response after they see that, well, if Abraham was saved that way, then what's the purpose of the law? I mean, you're suggesting that a person doesn't have to obey the law, that is, the law of Moses, so what's the purpose of it? Why do we even have it? And uh, and Paul's going to answer that question in our passage this morning in chapter 3, verse 15 through verse 22. Now before he does that, um, he's going to show that the law of Moses is inferior to the promise of Abraham. So we'll, we'll talk about that in these first couple verses. But let me read the passage first and then we'll take a look at, at what Paul has to say for us. This is the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. 
Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul responds to their potential objection that they would bring up. If the Galatians said to him, Paul, then why do we need the law of Moses? He's going to tell us why in these verses. And the the answer is that the law of Moses points people to Christ. The law of Moses points people to Christ. For the Old Testament believer, it showed them their sin and it showed them they needed a Savior. For the New Testament believer, it shows us our sin and it shows us a need for a Savior. So the law of Moses points us to Christ. Now Paul breaks this down into and first in verses 15-18. through 18, He gives three reasons that the covenant with Abraham is superior to the covenant of Moses. Now that's completely backwards from what these opponents would have been setting, saying, these Judaizers. They would have said, no, The law of Moses is superior. Why? Because it's come after the law of Abraham, so it pushes the law or the promise to Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, it pushes it aside. And now the law of Moses is it. And Paul's saying no. Verses fifteen through eighteen, let me show you that the the covenant with Abraham is superior to the covenant of Moses. Alright, let me show you why I say that from these verses. The first reason I say that is because Verse 15, the covenant with Abraham cannot be revoked. The covenant with Abraham cannot be revoked. Now notice how Paul begins this passage. I love how he begins this with the word brethren. Okay, keep in mind, Paul has been he he's been going after the Galatians really, saying some pretty harsh things about them because they sided with these opponents of his, these opponents really of Christ. Paul's been saying some pretty harsh things, but then he comes back and says, he reminds them, "Listen, okay, you're my brother. I, I'm not saying that you're 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 on you're opposed to me, that you're not a child of God, that you're part of the family of God, and and that's why I'm entreating you, you in this way as a brother." And then he he gives this point here in verse 15. I speak in terms of human relations. Okay, he's trying to give a an example from that we would understand, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Okay, here's his point in verse 15. 
human covenants cannot be ratified once they have been validated. That's what ratified means. And once they've finally been once they've been confirmed or finalized, you can't revoke them, right? You you know this when you come into a a covenant with another person. When I worked for Jackson Dawson full-time, our company would often enter into contractual agreements with car manufacturers. We did training in the dealerships all over the country and would train the dealers how to sell the cars, the, the newer models of the cars, before they would actually come, up, come to the dealerships. So they would know uh, what all the features were and that sort of thing. Well, suppose we got a contract to do some in-dealership training all over the country, uh, and we had this contract with Ford Motor Company. And we, we did have this on several occasions. And about halfway through the project, Ford Purchasing decides, you know what? We can't really follow through on our end of the deal. We decided we're just going to cut what we said we would give you in half. Uh, we can't fully, it's not because of anything that you've done on your side, but we just decided we, we're not going to pay you as much as we initially said. And how do you think the CFO of, of our company would respond to something like that? Okay, I have an, a, a contractual agreement that you said that if we followed through on our end of the deal that you would pay this amount. And now you're, you're going back on that. And if, if it went too far, then the CFO of our company would be able to even take them to court if necessary, right? Because he has a contract. And so the point is that once a contract has been finalized, it cannot be revoked. And that's what Paul's saying here. So if that is the case, here's what Paul here, here's Paul's point. Notice verse fifteen. I speak in terms of human relations. If that is is how contracts work between two humans, then let me show you how it works from God. Or how much more is is God required to follow through on his end of the deal? Look at Genesis chapter fifteen with me. We're coming back to Galatians three here. Uh, after we look here, but Genesis chapter 15, I'll show you this covenant that he had with Abraham that that Paul is referring to. If, if if we as human finalize covenants and we have to follow through on them, we can't revoke them, we can't go back on them or add conditions to them after they've already been finalized. How much more is that true for God? And so Paul's point is that's the way it was with the covenant of Abraham. God's not going to go back and change it or add conditions to it. He's going to follow through. So what we need to understand is what is this covenant with Abraham? And that's why we're here in Genesis 15. I'm going to read for you a, a bit of a longer passage, verses 12 through 21, but this is, this is the agreement that God makes with Abram here. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." 
It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Okay, prior to this, God had told Abram to bring him, verse 9, a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, three-year-old, excuse me, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And when he brought these to them, look at verse 10, to God, then he cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds. Okay, so that's what, that's what it's referring to there in verse 17. It came about when the sun had set. It was very dark that this there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these cut animals. Okay, so let's just picture that each part of the animal is on either side of this aisle. Where, what is Abraham doing during this whole covenant that's going on? Did you see that in verse 15 or verse 12? He's in a deep sleep, right? So Abram's out of the picture. I mean, he's witnessing it, but he's actually not involved in the agreement. He's not required to do anything. In fact, God is the only one that passes through the animals. And as I've mentioned before, that what this meant was when they would enter into an agreement in those days, they would cut the animals in half, and then each person, if let's say it was two humans making an agreement, each person would walk through the middle of those cut animals saying, if I don't follow through on my end of the agreement then let what happened to these animals happen to me. That was the idea. Okay, They didn't actually say that as they walked through, but that's essentially what they were saying as they did it. So then the next person will walk through. Well, here we have God essentially walking through these animals in the, as He often appears in a, like a flaming torch. Right? He, he walks through the center of these animals. What is God saying there? Let what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't follow through on my end of the covenant. And then what do we see? Abraham walking through? No. So here's what Paul's saying in Galatians chapter 3. God made a unilateral, one-sided covenant with Abraham that he would do something for him. We know what that something is. That he would all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Genesis chapter 12. Okay, that he would give him this great land. Okay, and that he would many nations would be blessed through him, that would, would come through him. Okay, so, so God's saying, I'm going to do this. You can guarantee it, because I'm not going to die like these animals. I will follow through on my end of the covenant. Turn to Galatians chapter three now. God's saying, I'm going to follow through on my end of the promise. So just like with human covenants, once they're ratified, they can't be they can't be revoked or have conditions added to them. Paul's saying the same thing is true about the covenant of Abraham, the promise given to Abraham. God's not going to go back on it or add conditions to it. So the first reason that we know that the the, the covenant with Abraham is superior to the covenant of Moses because Covenants, when given by God, cannot be revoked. They can't be uh, reversed. 
The second reason is found in verse 16, why the covenant of Abraham is superior. And that's because the covenant with Abraham pointed beyond the law of Moses. So if we try to look at them in like a timeline, we have the covenant of Abraham here, the covenant of Moses here, the law of Moses, and then Christ. Okay, That is, that Christ finally comes. The law of Moses, we're going to see, and the second part of this passage points to Christ. But what the... the um, the covenant with Abraham does is it actually points all the way to Christ as well. Let me show you that in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now Paul explains something here that um, when this promise was often repeated, like in Genesis chapter 22, it would say that that, that your seed, uh, there's going to be a great seed through you. And what the Old Testament readers might have understood that to mean is that seed was used in a collective sense. That is, um, like we say, you know, how many people are in the class? Okay, Class can be used either as singular, well, it's used in the singular form, but it can mean a collection of people, Right? And so when when we can do this too with our, our gardening ourselves, right? The the farmer needs to plant his seed. Well, do we mean that he's going to plant one seed there? No, it means he's going to plant all of his seed, his many seeds. And so Paul's saying here, it may sound like the blessing is actually going to come through all of Abraham's seeds, all of his descendants, but the blessing doesn't come through all of his descendants but rather one seed. That's why it's used in the singular in a non-collective way. That is because it's pointing to Christ. See, the, the covenant with Abraham was not designed to start a race of people that would spread positive vibes throughout the world. Okay? The covenant, uh, the race of people that were coming from Abraham were actually leading to one specific person. One great Jew. One perfect Jew. And that was Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, the covenant of Abraham actually extends beyond the law of Moses. Now what we'll see is the law of Moses doesn't extend beyond the law of Christ. It doesn't extend beyond Christ. It goes to Christ and stops. It's only used for for uh, the people prior to that. And so in that sense, the covenant with Abraham is superior to the covenant of Moses. The third reason that the covenant of Abraham is superior to the covenant of Moses is found in verse 17. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The third reason is that the covenant with Moses doesn't eliminate the covenant with Abraham. Now here's what we would tend to think this is what the Judaizers taught. We would tend to think that newer is better, right? So that you have the promise or the covenant with Abraham. Now the law of Moses comes and this is much better. So let's set aside the promise of Abraham or the covenant with Abraham. And now the law of Moses has superseded it. It it stands alone. And what Paul is saying is no, that's not the case. Newer is not always better. 
In fact, this promise given to Abraham is still in effect even though the law came. And this promise that he's talking about uh, says in verse 17, came 430 years earlier. Probably referring to the time when the covenant was last reminded to Jacob. Okay, All the way to the time that the people were in Egypt and then finally able to receive the law of Moses, which happened where? In Mount Sinai, right? Out in the wilderness. And they, when they, we have the Exodus, remember the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then they're out in the wilderness, and then finally uh, Moses receives the law there at Sinai. Okay, so that, that's the 430 years. From the last time the, the covenant with Abraham was reminded to Jacob uh, while he was still in Israel to the time when they actually received the law. And so the point is is that God's covenant with Moses came along and it was important, but it doesn't wipe out the covenant with Abraham. It doesn't add conditions to it. That covenant with Abraham will still stand. And it has not changed. And so if you see and you look at the, the Mosaic covenant, the, the law of Moses, you will see that it was only meant to be temporary. And so that means that the gift of salvation is not based on the law of Moses. This is what these opponents were saying. These Judaizers are trying to say. Salvation is based on the law of Moses. Paul's saying, no, it's not based on the law of Moses. It's actually inferior to the covenant with Abraham. And salvation is based on the covenant of Abraham. What happened there? Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Okay? This is a gift of salvation. And it's based on a promise that God. It's not based on the law, it's based on a promise. If it were based on the law, then we could actually earn it. And salvation is not earned. That's why it's called, notice what it's called in verse 18, an inheritance. Okay, an inheritance is not earned, right? Do we deserve to receive an inheritance from our ancestors? Do we put ourselves or place ourselves into that family somehow? So the inheritance is not earned and therefore it's not based on something that we did. Performance, law. It's based on a promise that God had given so God granted it to Abraham by means of the promise. And so if the covenant of Abraham is superior to the covenant with Moses, and it is, then what's the purpose of it? Why do we even have a covenant with Moses? Why not just have this covenant of Abraham and then come to Christ? Christ comes along through the seed of Abraham and He provides salvation for the whole world. Why have the covenant with Moses? And he answers that question. He actually asks the question in verse 19 and then answers it in the remainder of verse 19 through verse 22. Why the law then? And the answer is, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, there you see who that seed is referring to again. Remember in verse 16, speaking and to one seed which is Christ. The, the, the promise was waiting around till the time when the seed would come. Satisfy that law. 
But here's the answer. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law of Moses was designed to highlight man's sin. It was designed to highlight his sin and his need for a Savior. Paul doesn't take any time beating around the bush to answer this question. He goes to the answer right away. It was because of transgressions. There's one main purpose of the law. And the main purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners. It was designed to show us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. I mean, we can recognize this very easily by just looking at the law of Moses. Uh, Looking at how Israel tried to fully obey it and they couldn't. No one of their great leaders who came since the time of Moses could... I mean, there's some great people, right? David, Solomon. No one of them could fully obey the law. And it pointed them to the fact that we can't do it. We, We need something else. We need someone else. And that is exactly what the law was designed to do. We can see this ourselves by just looking at the Ten Commandments. Right? How many of these Ten Commandments have we fully obeyed in our lifetime? Okay, maybe do not murder. Maybe do not commit adultery. But what about the other ones? Do not bear false witness. Have no other gods before you. Right? I mean, it points to the fact that we are sinful. And that's what the law was designed to do. And it points us to our need for a Savior. This is what the Old Testament does. That you have all these great people that rise up and say, wow, maybe this could be the one. This is the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 But then they die. And then another leader has to come along to save God's people. And then they die. They don't fulfill God's word work perfectly, His word, and they die. And so you have constantly this, these people failing and dying. And what you need is someone who will not fail and who will live forever. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verse 19. At the end of the verse, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. In fact, the law of Moses was very much inferior to the law of Abraham or the covenant with Abraham. Uh, We see this in the middle of verse 19. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. What Paul is saying here is, let me give you another reason why the law of Moses is inferior. And that is that the law of Moses actually required two mediators. Okay, one mediator we understand, it was Moses, right? He had to receive the law before he could give it to the people of Israel. God didn't come and give it directly to Israel. He went through Moses. But here we see another mediator, and that is these angels, right? In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen says to a Jewish audience, you received the law ordained through angels, yet you did not keep it. And so if we look at the the connection of of the law actually coming to the people of Israel, it was God, angels, Moses, Israel. Two mediators here in the middle. But what about the covenant with Abraham? God, Abraham. There's no mediator. And the point is, the mediator is actually 
makes it inferior because, if you have mediators in the middle, because it removes you farther away from God. And so the law of Moses is inferior in that way. Now you may be thinking, well, what about Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5 who's called the one mediator between God and man? But you have to recognize that Jesus is God, right? And so in a sense, when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we're coming to God through God. So there is really no mediator between us and God in that sense. That we don't have to have another human or an angel between us and God. We go directly to Jesus Christ. And so, the natural question then is, okay, if the law was designed to point us to Jesus Christ, Paul said that already, then does that make the law opposed to the covenant with Abraham? You have the covenant of Abraham here, the law of Moses designed to point us to Christ, not designed to be forever, only designed to be temporary. So is that opposed to the covenant with Abraham? And the answer in verses 21 and 22 is no. The law of Moses is actually in harmony with it. It is complementary. Verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would it indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law of Moses is not opposed to the promises given to Abraham. It is complementary. It's not that... um, Okay, you can receive salvation through one or the other. You can see this is what the Judaizers are saying. You may think that you can get salvation through the promise of Abraham, but what we're telling you is that you need to get salvation through the law of Moses. And what Paul is saying is actually the way that you get salvation is it's based on the promises that come from Abraham, and it's through the law of Moses. That is, the law of Moses is actually a part of the way in which you come to Christ. It is the way that helps you to see your own sin and your own wickedness and see that you need someone that can fully satisfy the law. So in that sense, they're in harmony with one another. They work together because they point a person to salvation. And that's what the law of Moses was designed to do. Verse 22. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. See that... It sounds like a bad thing. The law of Moses was designed, remember verse 19, because of our transgressions, to to show us our sin. That doesn't sound like a very good thing. But Paul's saying that is a very good thing. Because without an understanding that we are sinners, we will not see that we need a Savior, right? We will not see that we need someone to take our place, that on our own, based on our own performance, we can't be accepted before God. So in that sense, the law is a good thing. It is in harmony with the promises of Abraham, but it's not superior. And in that sense, that means that you don't need to obey it. The law of Moses, and I'm talking to us New Testament believers, the law of Moses has been set aside for the law of Christ. Now, we still have laws to obey. 
God has given us several commands that we are to obey in the New Testament, but the law of Moses is set aside. That was only designed to be temporary for the people of Israel to show them their need of Christ, and when Christ came, the law was set aside. Now, if if you've ever bought into the lie that your works are necessary for your right standing before God, then certainly you have seen the futility of your efforts. If you have, if God has shown that to you, if you've become honest with yourself, I, I mentioned last week that those who try to keep the law either have a false hope, God has to accept me because of what I've done. They either have a false hope or they have despair. I can't be accepted before God because I'm so wicked. That's what the law will ultimately... If we try to obey the law in this age, that's what it's going to lead us to. But if we're honest with ourselves and we see the clear truth that's given to us in the Scripture, then we'll see that that our performance constantly comes up short. And as a result, it points us to Christ. It will it should lead us to a place where where we say we can't save ourselves. I've tried and tried and tried and I've failed. And there's no reason that you should accept me before your holy presence, God. So I need something else. And the amazing thing is, is that once a person comes to that understanding in their mind, then the work of regeneration has already been done in their hearts. God has already gripped them. That is, the Spirit has given life. And so, our response is simply one of trust. That, God, we can't do it on our own. We don't deserve anything from You except for Your wrath. Because we are sinners. I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve anything from God except for His wrath. And I know that no amount of works can save me. That all of my righteous acts are as filthy rags before You. The only thing that You will accept is the perfect life of Jesus Christ and His satisfactory death. And you've told me, God, that if I believe in that, that if I just simply put my faith in that, that will be enough. It's like those who were in uh, Egypt before the death angel passed by and killed all the firstborn. What was Israel told to do in order to protect their firstborn? Remember, they had to put the blood on the doorpost. And we may say, well, that was an act, that was a work there. Actually, it was an act of faith because what they did was they simply believed that what God said was true, that His death angel was coming. And I love how Dr. Don Carson puts it, this illustration of the death angel about to come. He said there are two men that uh, that had believed the promise. One was believed with a lot of skepticism, a lot of uh, hesitation, but he still put the blood on the doorpost. He put it on, and the whole night he was worried about what was going to happen. What happens if if it, they take my son anyway? 
What happens if it doesn't work? What happens if I didn't put enough blood on the doorpost? What happens if I didn't do it exactly in the right way? And the other guy put the blood on the doorpost and said, hey, don't worry about it. Okay? He said it. It's going to happen. You put the blood on the doorpost, then the angel of death will pass over you. And the point, Carson says, is which one of those men are spared from their sons dying? And the answer is both, right? And so the point that he's making there is that our salvation is not based on our faith. It's not based on our faith. It's based on the promise. Okay, The faith is the instrument that God uses to bring us to Himself. But ultimately, when we express our faith, we don't have to go back and say, did I have enough faith? Right? Because then what are we trusting in for God to save us? We're, we're trying to have faith in our own faith. And God says, just believe what I said. That I'm enough. Christ is enough. You don't have to worry about all the things that you have to do. Trust in Me. What I've said, and that I am the type of God that makes one-sided covenants and follows through on them. I will not revoke them. I will not add conditions to them. You see? That's the type of God that we have. And our salvation is based on a promise that was given to us that anyone who comes to Me, I will in no way cast out. If you believe in your heart, or if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? If you believe it, then that's enough. It's all God asks of you. And now, where does all the glory go? To us, because we just put the door, you know, the blood on the doorpost just right. All the glory goes to God because He's the one who who gave us the promise and followed through on it. Our salvation is an inheritance. It's a gift. It's not of works so that no one can boast. All of the praise goes to God who saved us through Jesus Christ. And so we may think that the law is a bad thing. And you may think that getting other people to see that the law is a bad thing. But ultimately it is good because it points us and them to, to our need, which is we need someone to take our judgment upon us. We can't take it upon ourselves unless we live eternally in hell. Or we die eternally in hell, I should say. The only person that can take your place is Jesus Christ. He did that for you on the cross. The law was designed to be temporary to point us to Christ. And then once it did, it was set aside for the age of grace in which we now live. Now you you may be thinking, well, if that... if if we come to saving faith, or if we come to conversion through faith, then that means we don't have to do anything. And chapters five and six, when we get there, will show us no. Okay, that doesn't give us a license to just do whatever we want, because that's the other extreme that we can have. Okay, here's the first extreme: is I'm shackled to the law of Moses, and I have to do all these things in order to keep be pleasing to God and continue to be pleasing to God. Well. 
the scriptures are clear. That's not true. So we'll set that aside. And now I can just do whatever I want. And chapters 5 and 6 will answer those questions for us. So I, I'd encourage you to continue on as we look through the study in Galatians. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus Christ. What words can we borrow to thank our dearest Lord, our dearest friend, for for giving us His life? He could have stayed in Your presence and enjoyed the glory that He had from all eternity, but He chose to come to earth to humble Himself, take on Himself the form of a man, and become humiliated and obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And His greatest humiliation is really His greatest exaltation. The reason that we praise Him most is because His selfless, sacrificial act that He did on the cross. So forever we will praise You for His work and for Your love in sending Him to us. We pray that You'd help us to understand freshly our own sin and our continual need for a Savior. We pray that we would turn in faith and repentance. Maybe someone is here today who does not know Jesus Christ and who has not trusted in Him alone. May You work in their hearts. And for each of us who have done so, we pray that You would continually strengthen us and help us to see our continual need for Him. Not to depend upon our own work, but through faith to believe what You say, that that what You say and what You command us to do is more important and more valuable, more eternally beneficial than the pleasures that are offered in this world, the sins that we can enjoy for a season. May we believe that and live that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.